You are listening to Moving On With Pain, the podcast. This podcast is presented by the Danish Society for Pain and Physiotherapy. This episode is created with and for the European Pain Federation, EFIC. If you'd like to watch the following content in video format, you can visit the EFIC Facebook page and head to videos. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And welcome back to the European Pain Conference here in Valencia. My name is Dr. Morten Hoog and I'm a pain scientist, clinical scientist, clinician. I have the privilege uh, as my role as the vice chair of the educational committee for the European Federations of Pain Federation to interview our plenary speakers. And uh, this time it's Professor Dirk de Ridder from Belgium in the chair. But when I looked at your curriculum, i noticed that you are from Belgium, but you also have a chair in, in New Zealand. Yes, that's correct. That's I, a long way to work. It is. Um, so I travel up and down between New Zealand and um, Belgium. I spend one third of my time in Belgium where I have a neuromodulation clinic. So where I see patients and, do, uh, and my research is predominantly done in uh, New Zealand. So every month I travel up and down, and then one third of the time, basically, I just travel around the world. Oh, wow. So how do you handle jet lag? Well, as long as I don't have jet lags, I keep on doing it. <laughs> Once I will start getting jet lags, I might have to change my yeah. lifestyle a little bit. Maybe you just don't get it. No, the jet I, lags, I, mean. I don't get them. Yeah, that's perfect. So uh, you are a medical doctor's background, and then you trained as a neurosurgeon back in 1998. So that's more yeah. than 20 years ago. And in 2005, you got your PhD. What was the title or the topic of your PhD? So the title or topic of my PhD was a Darwinian approach, neurosurgical approach to tinnitus or phantom sound. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to understand from an evolutionary perspective um, why something like phantom sound or tinnitus could develop. Let me just stop you there. So a phantom sound, is that sounds that are not really there or, or what is yes. that? A phantom sound is a sound which is not present in the environment, um, like phantom pain, where if after an amputation you can feel pain in the arm or hand that's not present anymore, uh, you can still feel the pain. Phantom sound is exactly the same, but then in the auditory domain. So would you say that a phantom sound is a sound that is generated, so you hear a sound, but it's not, it's not Um, activate it through a stimulus so it's not sound wave that hits your ear but it's somehow a sound you hear anyways is that yes. correct? So there is um, at least two kinds but to, to keep it um, relatively straightforward a phantom sound uh, occurs just like in phantom pain when you have hearing loss most mm -hmm. of the time if you have hearing loss your brain will predict sound should arrive mm -hmm. and what the brain then does is if the sound does not arrive out of kind of safety, it will say, well, this sound should arrive, so it generates the sound itself. The problem is because the brain does not know when that sound should arrive, that it creates it constantly. So you get this constant sound that is actually the one that you don't hear anymore yeah. because of a hearing loss. So, so this, when you say the word sound, what you mean is it's something you hear. So the person hears a sound. Yes. And there's, there's just nothing that really triggers it. No. But it, it, it happens in people with hearing loss. And is it a, would you say it's, it's a neuronal type thing? Yeah. So basically, um, 
how the brain solves the problem is that in a specific context, the brain will predict, well, this sound should arrive, and then it pulls it from memory. Mm -hmm. And so it's pulled from memory and just constantly made available for use. But unfortunately, it does not have any practical use. So is that how television works? You get the sound in one ear and you get the visual input from your eyes and it seems like the person in the television is speaking, but really the sound is maybe coming in from the sound speakers? Yes. And the picture from the television? Yes, So, and that's also one of the treatments that we're currently trying to apply is multi-sensory uh, congruence treatment where you want to do exactly what you say is by combining sensory stimulation with auditory, with vestibular and... Uh, So by combining these stimulations to then see if we can suppress the sound component of it. So you would you would have patients sit in a room and then you would give them something to look at, something to hear, and maybe tilt the balance a bit? Yes. And see if you can make that into one experience that is normal compared to a abnormal, maybe hearing a sound like tinnitus, yes. and which you, is not really there. Yes, and there. if you could um, then combine that with a reward then that then the brain will say, okay, well, this is what is normal. And what you will try is to get rid of the constant um, pulling yeah. that abnormal sound from memory. That's interesting. Um, so I, I think what I'd really love to, for you to start doing is tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, and then I, I'm sure we're going to talk about this later, but could you, could you tell us who are you? So professionally, who are you? Well, Professionally, I'm, I'm trained as a brain surgeon, although my clinical work is very different from my research work. My research work is, um, is often um, philosophically inspired translational research. So what, what it means is that I read a, try to read a lot of basic science, see what has been done and in basic science and animal studies and see if I can translate that to a human level so that it becomes clinically available. Um, This means that a lot of what I do is experimental brain surgery, uh, specifically implanting electrodes in, in the brain to try and suppress uh, phantom sound, phantom pain, depression, uh, OCD, uh, addiction. So different kinds of pathologies where we try to understand both from the animals and also from functional imaging in humans, so brain scans in humans, where the abnormal circuit is in the brain and to then try and normalize it by the implants. So I know because we had a chat before, so I know you're not thinking that there is a center in the brain that you can just take out. So that's not how you work. No, um, the, this, this kind of phrenological approach is, is outdated. We now know that the brain uh, functions by interacting, dynamically changing brain Uh, networks and that it's the network that create, creates, for example, craving and addiction. And craving and addiction is in a similar um, circuit that creates uh, distress, is in a similar circuit that creates unpleasantness or bother and, and pain. Um, so, the, so one circuit can have actually multiple different functions and can therefore be a target for multiple, even multiple different pathologies. And this is what is very interesting. If you try and see in the brain what do tinnitus, Parkinson's disease, um, uh, pain, um, even addiction and OCD, what do they have in common? 
that helps to understand why there is some extremely important networks that seem to be deficient in all of these pathologies. And I think this, this really encapsulates your philosophical approach. So what you are really trying to do is to understand the person, isn't it? And how the person relates to the brain or the nervous system. Would that be yes. correct? So, yes. Yeah. So my, my, um, another part of my research actually focuses on what is the self and the brain. And how does that lead to pathologies like depression, schizophrenia, etc.? So the self is a philosophical term, meaning that you know who you are when you wake up in the morning. Yeah, but the self, considering also from an evolutionary point, just like in my PhD, where there is the bodily self yeah. and the psychological self and the social self. And for example, we've once had a side effect of a brain implant where the patient, when we turned it on, even though the attempt was to suppress tinnitus, um, the patient got an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Now, we got permission then uh, from the person and the ethical committee to do that in a scanner, which uh, then showed us exactly the circuitry that was involved in an out-of-body experience because we could, we could control it um, in, a, in a placebo-controlled mm -hmm. way in a scanner. So an understanding how pain and tinnitus, but also depression and craving relates to the self is fundamentally important. Because as Aristotle already said, but also Merleau-Ponty, um, you need a person um, to perceive in order to perceive something. And a person yeah. to perceive is so, a self. So a sound in the universe is not going to be hear, heard unless there's a person who hears it. Yes. Yeah. Every stimulus yeah. and even brain-generated activity has to be related to the self. Otherwise, it does not make any sense. Yeah. Maybe this is a good point to, to then uh, have a look at your plenary talk. So the reason you're here is because you are a, a highly esteemed clinician as well as a scientist. And we would like you to tell us in like layman's terms, for you know, lack of a better term, what is it that you're going to say at that plenary talk? Well, so I will start with raising a problem. The problem which is called the neuropharma problem, where since 2011, the big pharma has uh, not developed any new medication that works on the nervous system. And the reason being is that it, um, that it has only 50% chance of um, uh, being successful. It takes 30 times longer to develop and it's 30% more cost, uh, costs more than, for example, cancer medication. So the big pharma has shifted away from medication that works on the brain. Yeah. This is being, this gap is being filled in by brain stimulation or brain modulation with sound, uh, light, electrical, magnetic stimuli. And that this is my research field. And this is booming now, actually to fill in yeah. the pharma gap. So would it be fair to say that the, you, the, the main approach used to be pharmacology, so yes. medicines. And because pharmacology is not being developed necessarily to, to target this specific problem of phantom sounds or phantom limb pain or phantom, then there's a new opportunity, there are new approaches to treating the same problem which are not pharmacological. Is that, yes. is that correct? Yes, but I think the, the main problem of the pharma might be is that they started, in, instead of most old drugs were dirty drugs, they worked on lots of receptors. Yeah. Look at ketamine, which is used for pain. Yeah. It works on close to 30 different receptors. Now they're trying to create 
medication that works on one receptor. Yeah. This is still in the phrenological idea of one receptor will cause pain. No, that's that's not the way it works. Yeah, so it's the, interacting network. So you have to unfortunately so the have way they do drugs. the medicines now is too specific, yes. maybe to have an effect on on um, these percepts of self. Yes. Yeah. And so that that was the background, and then uh, go on with your plenary. Sorry. So. Um, in order to fill in that gap, neuromodulation, um, but can, can try to fill in that gap. The problem is that current neuromodulation is still in a medieval state. It's a very primitive way. The, the material is old-fashioned. The, the stimulation designs are old-fashioned. Stimulation design is the way uh, the device, which is like a pacemaker, communicates to the brain is very old-fashioned. So this has to really scale up to the level of our smartphones, for example. So how do we do it today? What are the current opportunities? So, so the current option is exactly the same as the pacemaker for the heart. So okay. you, you can change the frequency of stimulation. You can stay, yeah. change the amplitude and the pulse width. That's about it. So it's basically putting electrodes yes. outside of the brain and then stimulating on the brain or the spinal cord. Yes, or in the brain. Or, or so, even in the brain, yes, yes. of course. But the, what you can do with those stimuli is very primitive. Yeah. Basically, what you do is... You give an electrical stimulus that goes like tuk, 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 and that's about it. And, and what so, will be the future of this? So the future, um, well, I developed a new stimulation design, which is also very simple. It's called, it goes like um, a machine gun. It goes, which has a completely different uh, impact on the brain. What it does is it uh, tells the brain, this is important. You have to respond to it. So it's, first of all, it's more, more powerful, but also it works on the effective component of the pain or the tinnitus or the depression, whatever it is. But this is even very primitive. The way we have to go is to integrate artificial intelligence, which is being used in our smartphones constantly, into um, those stimulators. So if the stimulator is the hardware, there is no software in this very primitive pacemaker-like device that we use to stimulate yeah. the brain or the spinal cord. We have to integrate artificial intelligence. Yeah. So the software has to become smarter. Basically, it has to become kind of a small brain in itself yeah. that can sense. So it's algorithms and learning, deep learning, that type yes. of thing. Yes, yeah. multidimensional space learning, deep learning, like you say. First of all, to recognize abnormal patterns in the brain yeah. that can then tell you, okay, this patient is in pain and probably feels the pain 7 out of 10 and a distress 6 out of 10. And then automatically adjust the stimulation design to what is being perceived. The stimulation design be, being the way the, the brain, uh, the stimulator communicates to the brain. Now also there, we need a lot more languages to communicate with the brain. Yeah. We now have tonic stimulation, the classical stimulation. So tonic meaning that it's just a stimulus? Yes, so yeah. tuk, tuk, tuk. Yeah. Then the burst stimulation, which I've developed, yeah. which goes trrr, trrr. The rapid But one? the future will be to mimic the brain itself. Yeah. And so we know the brain, for example, works in um, one over ever pink noise version, which means there is a lot of low frequency power and very little high frequency power. Yeah. If we can mimic that, then that will be more physiological for the brain and it should thereby, thereby be um, way more efficient. We've done this already non-invasively with stimulations going through the skull, yeah. through, so non-invasively. And now I'm trying to convince a company to develop it also for implants because the brain cannot habituate to that. Oh. It cannot say, well, it's always the same stimulus. So, so on, unlike the heart that has a specific rhythm mm -hmm. uh, that is repeated all over and that makes the heart work really well? 
then the brain has a completely different pattern. So we can't simply use a pacemaker for the brain. We need something that is much more delicate and that is adaptable to the individual. Is, yes. that, is that how yes. I hear you? So yeah. first of all, different circuits use different frequencies, just like yeah. a radio. You have to tune into a radio. Um, and uh, how, how far out in a future is this? When, when would this be applicable? For, for clinical care. Uh, well, this, the simple stimulation designs might be relatively quick within the, within the next two, three, four years. Yeah. However, combining that with sensing, yeah. so picking up the abnormal signals from yeah. the brain or the spinal cord might take a little bit longer. Yeah. And then having artificial intelligence being driving the integration between the two will take even even longer. Not just because of technological problems, but also for safety problems, regulatory problems, where it has to become CE marked and, and FDA approved. So now we're looking at 10, 20 years at least. Mm. So we, we're coming slowly to an end, but I really want to know, how do, you, how do you research this? So one thing is to clinically apply something that is available, but how do you, how do you research this? Well, I collaborate with lots of, lots of people. For example, we're now trying to um, develop reconditioning stimulation. What it does is it gives a stimulus and the reward system and so, this reward So talk me system. through. So it's a person who sits in a chair or? No, we start with animals. Okay, we so first you, you have do animal research. Uh, rat or mouse, what do you do? These are rat studies. Rats. I don't do rat studies myself. No, no. These are done by but other it's, people. It's how, yeah. how do we do it? So you yeah. have a rat and then you... So you, you test something new. For example, reconditioning stimulation. Yeah. What you do is you put an electrode in the part of the brain that gives the rewards. Yeah. And uh, you put an electrode in the part of the brain that gives the opposite, a punishment. Yeah. And then you link the reward and to... How, how do you know if it's punishment or reward? Oh, you can test that in animals. Okay. So what you then do, for example, let's say you're an alcoholic. Then you present an image of alcoholic drinks mm -hmm. and you pair that to a punishment, an electrical mm. punishment in the brain. Okay. You show the same person, let's say water, yeah. and you give a reward. So you recondition the brain to like water and dislike alcohol. We first test that in animals. Once we see it works in animals, we will translate it then to humans. Yeah. And the good thing is, for example, but... Now, this topic that we're talking about is that these two targets are already being used in humans. Yeah. So it's just adjusting the adjusting way the, we treat yeah. that part of the brain to make it way more efficient. And, and I know this is a stupid question because this is not what you mean, but I don't think that rats are alcoholics. So how do you, how do you know that the rat is being conditioned away from something? How, how do you do that? Oh, that's, we're currently testing it on tinnitus and tinnitus is model in rats. Yeah. So those rats are, are conditioned, first of yeah. all, to lick um, a little bit of salt so, whenever they hear a sound. Yeah. Then you and create, is that a good thing or bad thing for them, to lick salt? Do they or like whatever, that? Or? Whatever they lick. It doesn't really matter. Okay. So, so it could be sugar. Yeah, it could be sugar. Yeah. It could be anything. So as long as they lick when they hear a sound. So they're, they're conditioned to do that. Yeah. Then you create a noise trauma. And if they develop tinnitus, meaning mm -hmm. constant sound, they mm -hmm. will lick more. Okay. If they don't develop tinnitus, then they will not lick. No. So this is the way how you hypothesize yeah. that the animal has tinnitus. Yeah. And you can do the same for addiction. And then you do the, you do the, the insertion the, and training. And then ideally they would, they would have a normal licking pattern afterwards. Yes, afterwards. Yeah, so this is what we're currently doing yeah. um, in New Zealand. And then if that works, because the targets are already being used in humans, yep. you can just actually relatively simply translate that to humans then afterwards. Amazing. Would you agree that understanding 
how the brain relates to pain is is highly complex. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, but it is understandable. Yeah. Um, even so though models are de- being developed. Yes, and uh, even though the brain looks like the most complex entity we know in the universe, yeah. it still follows simple rules because we have a couple of genes that control for the brain. Those genes encode for the rules that the brain follow. So if we understand those rules and also what goes wrong with following the rules, then that would explain a lot more than just one. And therefore, it is so important to not just study pain, but to study pain, then it is Parkinson's yeah, disease all, all of the at once because the yeah. rules are ultimately the same. Because they relate to the brain. Okay, yes. so just one final question. Let's go back to Belgium. The patients you see would be suffering from tinnitus, for instance. Yes. Yes. What is your best advice for someone who has tinnitus or who think they have tinnitus, who, who might well, have it? First of all, we advise to see an audiologist and an ENT surgeon to see yeah. if there is no treatable cause. So is that, an ornitholo- is that an ear doctor? An ear doctor, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, it would be kind of ridiculous for me to try and start treating the brain if the tinnitus is due to some earwax. Yeah, yeah, that so sounds... That's first. So get it, get it get fixed. It, I mean, get, get it assessed by yes, a doctor. get it assessed by an audiologist. And if someone and has doctor. already tried that, then... And uh, they, they, I don't... Is there any medication that works for tinnitus? Well, there is uh, not one single medication that has been FDA or CE approved for tinnitus. So everything we do is off-label by definition. Okay. I use a lot of medication. Off-label means it's not... It's not approved for tinnitus, but it might work for other things. So it's safe to give humans. We just don't know if it works for tinnitus. Yes. So, for example, um, if somebody has tinnitus, which is present only 10% of the time, it is not very loud or they have to concentrate to hear it, there's no use in giving medication because the side effects will be worse than the benefit. However, if somebody is devastated, almost suicidal because of this constant sound, then we give, uh, first, we try to bring down the suffering Mm. of the tinnitus to an acceptable level. And then we will try with different methodologies, um, improving hearing, for example, with the hearing aid, um, giving a background noise. So it's really specific to the individual? To the individual, yes. So if you don't know if you have tinnitus, you need to see a doctor who knows about tinnitus ears. And if you have it and you are devastated about it, it, it ruins your life, you would need to see a specialist. Would that be an ear doctor as well? Uh, that could be an ear doctor. Yeah. That could be an audiologist. That could be a neurologist. Could yeah. be a psychiatrist. Could be a neurosurgeon. Yeah. So there is, it's a very multidisciplinary field, just like pain. Yeah. So basically, once, it's, once we know it's there, it's, it's a condition that many people can, live, can, can help you with because it's all about you, isn't it? It's all about who has it yes. and how they work deal with it, live with it. Yes, and this is why all studies have failed up to now to find one, the magic bullet from Mm -hmm. Paul Ehrlich doesn't work because there is not one magic bullet that will treat all tinnitus, just like there is not one drug that will treat all pain. So you have to adjust it to the person. That's the perfect line to end on. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure.